Welcome to From God to Us, the podcast where we deal with biblical issues and biblical studies and talk about God and the Bible, about people, about life and issues that relate to us in our daily lives and in our culture and offer some kind of application for daily living. We've been in a study now on how we got the Bible. And we've gone back and looked at the authority of the Bible. We've looked at how do we know which books belong or don't belong in the Bible in both the Old and New Testament. We've done some study in looking at the, the languages itself, particularly the Greek language. And there's so many questions about that and how we can know we have a certainty that the Greek text we have today are accurate and represent the message that God has given us. I want to go today into a bit of the history of the English Bible. For many years, the Bible was translated into Latin. The Latin Vulgate was translated in 400 AD and eventually became the standard for the church. But as the church grew and expanded, many, many people wanted the Bible in their language. There were attempts at various times for the Bible to be translated into other languages. But the beginning of the history of the English Bibles, and it probably began with a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Back in 1380, 1383, John Wycliffe published an English translation of the Bible. He was a professor and a chaplain who wanted the common man, the common person, to be able to read the Bible in his own language. His translation was published in what we would now call Middle English. So we probably couldn't read it and understand it. But he translated it from the Latin Vulgate. In other words, he didn't go back and use the Greek and Hebrew language. He took the primary Bible of the day and translated it into a language that people could understand. Because of this, and because he tried to put a Bible in the hands of the common people, Wycliffe endured great opposition from the church. He was tried twice for heresy, though he was never convicted. After he died, those people who followed him and continued to to spread his work and, and put out English Bibles were called the Lollards, which means mumblers. In other words, they were criticized for wanting to speak the words of the Bible in their own language, and this was called mumbling or mumblers. And they were greatly persecuted uh, in the church. Men, women, children, many were beaten, executed, and burned at the stake simply because they wanted to read the Bible in their own language. Fifty years after Tyndall's death, he was tried again and convicted of heresy. This was after he was already dead. So he was convicted of heresy and his bones were dug up and burned as a heretic. This just shows how much the church that in that day was in control of people, how much they didn't want people to read the Bible in their own language, how much they were afraid of people having the Bible in their own hands. The Age of Enlightenment eventually came along and in the 1500s brought the Reformation. And so we had men like Martin Luther and Calvin, two of the most well-known Reformationists. And the Reformation encouraged people to read the Bible for themselves. Thus, people needed a translation in their own language that they can read. Martin Luther himself translated the New Testament into German in 1522. And it was during this era that Erasmus created his Greek New Testament. Remember, we talked about him in the last episode that the Greek New Testament was put together, which ultimately became known as the Textus Receptus and was the foundation for translating many other English translations. The next person to come along that had a tremendous impact on the translating of the Bible into the English language 
was a man by the name of William Tyndale, and maybe you've heard of him. He translated the New Testament into English in 1526. He was using uh, the Greek text to do this, so he wasn't translating from Latin. He was using the Greek text to translate this into English that people could read. He worked on the Old Testament until his death, but he never quite finished the Old Testament translating it. Tyndale was arrested in 1535. He was tried and burned at the stake as a heretic in 1536, all because he translated the Bible into English. His last words before he died were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Tyndall's work forms the basis of every English Bible translation until the Revised Version. The next Bible to come along was called the Coverdale Bible, and a gentleman by the name of Miles Coverdale continued Tyndall's work of translating the Old Testament and finished that work. The New Testament that he used to, to translate was essentially Tyndall's work, so basically it was Tyndall's New Testament translation. He translated the Old Testament, and then he published his Coverdale Bible in 1535 using all that Tyndall had done. So it was much of it was Tyndall's work, but Coverdale was able to publish this Bible. Then, just a couple years later, a man by the name of John Rogers, writing under the name of Thomas Matthew, published the Bible in 1537. And the important thing about this was he did it with the permission of the King of England. You see, the King of England was part of the persecution previously Tyndale, but now Rogers had permission from the King of England to actually publish a Bible, and this was known as the Matthews Bible. This was a revision, basically, of the Coverdale Bible, and again, essentially using Tyndall's work. The next English Bible that was produced is called the Great Bible in 1539, and it's basically a revision of the Matthews Bible, and this was edited by Miles Coverdale. But it was the first English Bible to be authorized to be read in the churches. They were still reading the Latin version in the churches. The next English Bible that came along that was prominent for quite a long time was the Geneva Bible. And then under the rule of Queen Mary in England, also known as Bloody Mary, the church uh, returned to a Catholic foundation with the Latin translation in, as its Bible. Believers suffered persecution again regarding the use of English translations. Many men, women, and even children were killed because they insisted on reading an English translation of the Bible, and again, many were burned at the stake. Some persecuted believers during that time fled to Geneva, Switzerland, and translated an English Bible under the leadership of William Whittington in 1560. It was an improvement over some of the other English translations, and it also contains study notes, similar to our study Bibles today, not as detailed, but scripture references and, and notes in the body of the text. It was, eventually became uh, the English Bible of the common people. In fact, it was the Bible that the Puritans, also known as the Pilgrims, used when they came to America. The Geneva Bible really became more popular than any of the others and soon became the Bible of the common people. Then later, under Queen Elizabeth, the throne returned to supporting the English translation of the Bible. And it was determined that a new English translation would be produced to be read in the churches. And so in 1568, the Bishop's Bible was published. It was translated more for the clergy than for the common man. 
And so the clergy, the, the priests and so forth, would read this version in the churches. But the Bible of the common man, the everyday person, was the Geneva Bible. The next Bible come along is the King James Bible. And I have a quite a detailed history on the King James Bible simply because it became very prominent and it's even used by people today. And so I think it's important to understand its history. When King James came to power, he's, he was from Scotland and many people thought he was going to bring Presbyterianism into the Church of England and force it into Presbyterianism. But actually, King James was more of a bit of a politician and he wanted to see a unity within the church, try to reunite the church from different uh, kind of denominations or factions. You had the Church of England and then uh, in Scotland you had the Presbyterian Church and he was trying to seek a way to to unite the church. So he summoned the religious leaders of the nation to the Hampton Court Conference in an attempt to bring unity to the church and to, to discuss re religious toleration. That was in 1604. At this conference, some of the pastors encouraged him to commission a new translation of the Bible that would unite both clergy and the common people. So this is what King James did, and he commissioned 54 scholars who were divided into six groups to do the task of translation. Two groups were in Westminster, two groups in Oxford, and two groups in Cambridge. Each group was given a specific section of the Bible to translate, and the work of each group then, after they had finished, was examined by one of the other groups. So they would trade off and examine the other, person's trans the other group's translation, make possible corrections, send it back. And so you had these 54 scholars working together on both the Old and New Testament, trying to translate a, a Bible into the language that could be used by all people. In their translation, they used Tyndall's work, of course, the Bishop's Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Great Bible, and the Geneva Bible. They consulted all these different Bibles, as well as the Greek and the Hebrew. So there was this effort to, to look at all that had been done and try to come up with a maybe a, just a little bit better translation. In the introduction to the original King James Bible, we read this statement. We never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one. And the point of making that statement is that the, the translators of the King James Bible didn't think they were creating the Bible for all time. They were just trying to bring one that maybe was the, the best, most coherent translation for their time. Having all these different translations available, they were hoping to have one that could be used by all people. This was quite a very significant work. Because no one had ever really uh, attempted anything like this, bringing 54 scholars together, having them in different places, them working together. And this kind of sets the stage for many of the modern translations are, are done similar, where you have a group of scholars working on the translation of the Bible. So it was a quite significant effort. The original King James Bible in 1611 contained the 39 books of the Old Testament that we read, the 27 books of the New Testament, but also the 16 books of the Apocrypha. So if you looked at the table of contents, you would see Old Testament, uh, you would see Apocrypha, and then you would see New Testament. The original King James Bible also had references to other biblical passages in its margin. Now, they didn't have notes, 
but they had references and they would put a reference say you came to a new testament passage you would reference some other text that um, might relate to that particular passage it was similar to some of our reference bibles today but there were no notes in this bible the interesting thing is that the new testament contained more references to the apocrypha than to the old testament And this just simply demonstrates that the translators believe that the Apocrypha was at least as inspired as the Old Testament. Of course, we talked about in one of our earlier sessions about why we do not accept the Apocrypha today. The first edition of the King James Bible was released in 1611, but it had a number of printing errors. It was printed in two different places, and there were some errors in printing. There were some really bad errors in some of that. They were, they were brought together, and it was republished again in 1613. Most people don't really know that. One example was in Ruth. There was one instance where the pronoun she appeared as he and some of the other copies of the Bible. And these were known as the he Bibles and the she Bibles. Now, obviously, this was simply a printing error, and it was corrected. But what it demonstrates is the attitude of the common people toward the king's Bible. They didn't really receive it very well. People liked their Geneva Bible, and many of them didn't respect the king or respect his Bible because it was named for him. It took almost 100 years before the King James Bible really became more popular than the Geneva Bible. Over the course of time, the King James Bible was revised. Some of the major revisions were 1626, 1638, 1700, and 1762, mostly in order to update the changes in the English language. An an example of, of the changes that were made, if you read the original 1611 version of the King James Bible, if you read John 3.16, which says, God so loves the world. Now, King James said, loveth. But if you actually looked at the 1611 version, the the letter V looks like a U. It looks like Lewith. Well, in 1611, what we call a U had a V sound, and you would pronounce it loveth. Well, as the language changed, then the text needed to be changed to reflect that. And these are just minor changes, editings. There's nothing wrong with that. But there were other changes that were made as Greek texts were found. So it was revised. It was updated so that it would be relevant to the people. It's just interesting to note some of the things that happened. In 1638, the edition left the word not out of Exodus 20:14, reading, thou shalt commit adultery. Uh, this became known as the wicked or the evil Bible. Again, this was a printing error. But again, it, it somewhat demonstrates the attitude that many people had, again, toward the King's Bible. It wasn't fully accepted. So, therefore, we see that changes were being made in the spelling, the punctuation, the word usage in the various editions of the King James Bible according to the changes that were occurring in the English language. They were simply updating the King James Bible. The 1769 Bakersville Revision is the version that is published and sold in America today. The English of the original 1611 version is very different from the English of the King James Bibles printed today because of the change and update in the language. And it's very difficult to get an actual copy of the original 1611 King James Bible. If you did, you'd find it very difficult to read, even more difficult than the current versions of the King James Bible. 
1885, the Apocrypha was officially removed from the authorized version of the King James Bible. Now, by authorized version, this refers to the translation of the King James Bible that was officially approved and authorized by the Church of England. It was the Church of England that commissioned the translation of the King James Bible, and therefore they're the ones who basically authorized it. So some people refer to the authorized version They're talking about the version of the King James Bible that was authorized by the Church of England. Now, with all this going on, uh, eventually the King James Bible did receive wide acceptance and has been loved by many Christians down through the years. But today, the language of the King James Bible is quite archaic. It's very difficult to read, very difficult to understand for most English-speaking people today. Many of the words uh, need to be explained and, and redefined for the people to understand its meaning. An example, someone was showing me in the, the account where the woman who had an issue of bleeding touched uh, Jesus' garment and was immediately healed. And the scripture says, and power went forth from Jesus and she was healed. The King James Bible says, virtue went forth. And this person was trying to show me that this was a better translation. But actually, if you look at the Greek word there, it's dunamis, which means power. It doesn't mean virtue. Virtue has to do with one's moral character. It wasn't Jesus' moral character that flowed out of him into this woman. It was a power to heal her body. In that case, in that instance, to say virtue went out from Jesus, that's actually a bad translation. It's not a good translation of the text. And so the King James Bible just, there's so many words and so many things that are difficult to understand. It's just not a good translation for us today. The King James only Christians, there's people who believe that the King James is the only Bible you should ever read. These King James only Christians today often will make unfounded claims about the strengths of the King James Bible and the supposed weaknesses of newer translations. Many of these claims are really half-truths, misinformation, and sometimes completely false. And I make this statement because I'm not criticizing someone who uses the King James Bible. I'm just saying that there are some people who say this is the only Bible you should read, and much of what they have to say is incorrect information. An example of this is if you compare the King James Bible with some of the newer translations, you'll find there's some verses here and there in the newer translations that aren't there but are in the King James Bible. And the claim from the King James only people is that the newer versions are leaving out parts of the Bible. But that's actually an incorrect statement. When we look at the texts that were used to translate the King James Bible, we know that the Textus Receptus had many fallacies. In fact, there were numerous verses that were added to the text along the way. The modern translations are using older, more reliable Greek texts where these verses don't occur. And so the correct statement is the King James Bible added verses that were not in the originals. And so you see that's a it's a misinformation about verses that are in one Bible or not in the other. But as we looked at before, these verses added or taken out don't really change the meaning of the text. We still have the essential message that God has given us. So in summary, the King James Bible was very helpful and an important translation for many, many years. But its usefulness for English-speaking people has reached a limit. So then we enter the age of kind of newer translations. So with the discovery of 
thousands of Greek texts with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the understanding that the Textus Receptus was not really a good Greek text to use in translation, the need arose to produce a new translation based on a better understanding of the Greek and the original text. This uh, version was called the Revised Version of the Bible and it was translated in 1881. This translation was used for a number of years, and it was uh, based on the original Greek and Hebrew text rather than simply a revision of the King James. And so it was a truly a new translation. And this translation began to give the rise, ultimately, to many new translations. Uh, in your notes, uh, you'll see a list of uh, various Bibles that have been translated. The next one was the American Standard Version in 1901. Then there was a pretty long gap of translation until we hit 1952. Now, I've listed all these. I'm not going to read all them to you. If you have the notes, you'll see all these various translations. Each one of these is an attempt to use the most recent developments in the Greek and Hebrew text to be as accurate as we can in the Hebrew and Greek text and to translate that into English that we use today. That's the primary goal of most of these. And so you have a whole list. Most notably, we'll just note some of these. The New American Standard came out in 1971, revised in 1995, as used by many people down through the years. The New International Version, or the NIV, was first translated in 1978, revised in 1984, and then again in 2011. The New King James Version, which uh, basically just updated the English of the King James, came out in 1982. There was the New Revised Standard in 1989. The New Living Translations, which some people still use today, 1996, revised in 2004. The English Standard Version in 2001, and then a few others I have listed for you. There is the message in 2002, which is actually not a translation. It's a paraphrase. It's a very good paraphrase, but it's not a translation, and we'll talk a little bit about that in our next, our next episode. So this is a bit of the history of how the English Bible came about, and next time we're going to talk about the whole issue of translating. What, what does it take to translate a Bible in the language of the people based on the Greek and Hebrew text. And there's a whole process. And I think that's a very important one for, for you to understand because when we get to the last session and we're talking about choosing a translation, it's very important to understand what was the process and what was the approach that each of these translations used in order to reach their end product. I hope this history has been helpful. Again, there are notes please go online and you can download the notes and you'll have all this information for you. And again, in the meantime, know that the Bible is the word of God and that reading it is God's message to you. With that, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we have the Bible today. And though there's been a long history of the translation of the Bible into the English language, we know that we have good quality translations today that help us hear and understand the message that you've given us. Thank you for that, Lord. May we each apply ourselves to the reading of your word and may it change our lives on a daily basis. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.